We have a God who provides. He provides for our daily bread. He provides everything that is required to satisfy our bodily needs. And the usual way that God provides for us is the good works of our neighbors. He protects us with those who serve in law enforcement and military. He feeds us with those who work in the food industry, whether it be a farmer, a burger flipper, or a grocery store worker, or a husband or wife who provides food for you at home. He, protects, uh, uh, he provides for children through their parents. For instance, the mother who nurses her child, as far as I'm aware, there's not really a whole lot she can do to provide milk for her child. The Lord just provides for her child through her. The Lord has also provided for every spiritual need that we have as well. He has given to us his word, and he has given to us people who teach his word. Specifically here in this congregation, we saw this morning that God graciously provided for us Sunday school teachers for this coming year. As far as I'm aware, there wasn't a supernatural plane flying through the air with a banner saying, you shall teach Sunday school this year. Has anyone that happened to you as teachers? Benjamin, you're smirking, so maybe it happened to you and you're denying it. That, that's not the usual way that God works. Instead, he works through means. He works through people. And he has given each of us different gifts and different abilities and different talents that we are to use for his kingdom. So if the deacon of education comes and asks you, would you be willing to teach Sunday school this year? If you are gifted with teaching and you are willing and able to do that, and God says, puts it on your heart to do it, you say yes. And that is God providing for his congregation, providing Sunday school teachers for us. That's the usual way that God provides for his people. Not everyone is called to be a Sunday school teacher. And that being said, everyone, however, is called by God to invest in one another and to love one another and to build one another up in the faith. To encourage one another, to share our faith with one another, and to pray for one another, to love one another. And these are some of the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them. I would encourage you to uplift these Sunday school teachers this year through prayer and encouragement. And one of the best ways to encourage them is to be there and teach, to be taught God's word through the gifts that he has given to our congregation. This morning, though, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that speaks of God's provision. The Lord has provided a king for Israel, but in the previous chapter, we see that king had been rejected from being king. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16 as I read verses 1 through 13. And I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Reading in Jesus' name. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. For the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth here this morning. Open up our hearts, our minds, our ears to receive the message that you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A few chapters earlier in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel are clamoring for a king. They want to be like all the other nations, all the other countries, and have a king to lead them, someone that they can see, someone that they can follow, someone that they can look to and trust, someone that they can know is there and will be there for them. They had been led by God. He had provided prophets and judges to lead them and to guide them. He had provided laws to govern them and instructions for them. He had provided everything that they needed. But the people simply wanted someone they could see. The Lord tells Samuel in chapter 8, they have rejected me from being king over them. The people have rejected God from being their king and instead are clamoring for a human king. They want to be just like all the other nations. So the Lord provides a king for them. And this king looked like a great, mighty king. Scripture speaks of Saul as being a man who stood a head taller than everyone else. He was a man that the people could rally behind, a man they could be excited about, a man that they could see. He was majestic, and he seemed to be the perfect fit for their king. The Lord anointed King Saul, but when it was his time to be presented to the people, Scripture tells us that Saul doesn't walk out before the people, but no, Saul is hiding in the baggage. Here's your king. He's too ashamed to stand in front of you. He's too shy. He's too afraid to stand before you. But here is your king. That should have tipped people off as to what kind of king he would be. But he started out well. And the people greatly praised their king. This king feared the people. In chapter 15, the Lord gives some instructions to this king. In verses 2 and 3, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The instructions that the king was given were certainly clear. King Saul went to defeat the Amalekites, and he went to war against them, and he did. And he did defeat them. In verse 9, we see what happened at the end of this battle. We see that he had failed to follow God's orders. 
But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. It wasn't uncommon to plunder your enemy back in the day and to take for yourselves the best, the spoils of war. However, that's not what King Saul was instructed to do here. King Saul was given very specific instructions from the very mouth of God. Everything was to be utterly destroyed, not plundered. You're not to make yourself rich over this battle. The prophet Samuel approaches the king afterwards and he asks him, Why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? And why did you do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul claims to have done no wrong. He said, I did what the Lord told me to do. I defeated the Amalekites. I've spared the king, but I've defeated the people. And Samuel informs the king that the Lord values obedience over sacrifice, and that it's more important not to bring the best and the brightest and the best things back for yourself, but it's more important to obey the Lord and to follow him and to serve him faithfully. But since the king had rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord rejected Samuel, or Saul, from being king. King Saul pleaded with Samuel to go back with him. He wanted the prophets to honor him before the people again, and he says, I feared the people. It was the people that wanted to save the best and the brightest. The people wanted the animals for themselves, and I feared them, so I listened to them. King Saul fears the people more than fearing the word of the Lord, more than fearing the Lord, more than obeying the Lord. So Samuel, at the end of the chapter, would go and finish the job that King Saul was told to do. And he hacked to pieces Agag, the Amalekite king, before the Lord. The Lord had provided a king. The Lord had provided instruction. And this king whom the Lord provided refused to obey that instruction. And so the Lord had removed the king and rejected the king. As our passage starts, Samuel here is grieving. He's grieving the fact that the Lord had rejected Saul from being king over Israel. Who would be the king? Who would lead God's people? Would the Lord reject his people? Has the Lord rejected his people since he has rejected their king? There were lots of questions still to be answered, but the Lord knew what he was doing. And he would reveal his plan shortly to this grieving prophet. He gives a prophet instructions in verse 1. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. The Lord had a king picked out already, a king to replace this king who had rejected him. And he was calling Samuel to go and to anoint him. Samuel begins to protest. And you can understand why King Saul is still serving and ruling as the king at this time. How would Saul take the news that a new king was going to be anointed? He didn't take the news too well that he had been rejected from being a king. Samuel fears for his life. And rightfully so. The Lord gives him instructions, provides more instruction for him. He says, take a heifer and sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I'll show you who I've chosen to be king. So the prophet enters Bethlehem and the people, the elders of the city are on edge. No doubt they've heard what Samuel had just done to the captured king. They knew who Samuel was, that he was a prophet of God, and they were wondering, is God's prophet coming to judge us here today? 
And Samuel assures them that he comes in peace. And that he came to sacrifice to the Lord and he invites Jesse and his sons to join him. And there at the sacrifice, Samuel sees one of Jesse's sons. He sees Eliab and he thinks to himself, that's my guy. That guy right there, he's majestic. He's the best of all of these sons who are gathered here around this sacrifice. He's the next king. That's got to be him. But the Lord instructs Samuel. In verse 7, he says this, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. All the sons of Jesse that were there at the sacrifice passed before the prophet. And not one of them, is Samuel is told to anoint as the next king of Israel. So Samuel asks Jesse, what's going on? Are these all of your kids? Did you bring all of your kids here? And he's told that the runt of the litter is still back home. I don't know if he's grounded or what, but he's back home watching the sheep, taking care of the sheep. Did Jesse think that he was unworthy to come to the sacrifice? We're not told. But for whatever reason, the runt of the litter is not invited to be here with all of his, with this father and son outing. So David summons, or David is summoned to come before Samuel, and he passes before Samuel, and the Lord says to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the one, this young redhead with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance, this is the guy that I have chosen to be the next king of Israel. It wasn't who Samuel expected, it wasn't Eliab. It wasn't who Jesse expected, he left him at home. Yet David is the one whom the Lord had chosen to be the next king of Israel. The passage ends announcing that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Saul may have been the king that the people wanted, the king that the people would have chosen over this humble shepherd king. But reading through the two kings' reigns, it's easy to see how much better David's reign was than Saul's. David became the prototypical king. He became the best king, the king on whom every other king was to measure their success by based on how do they rank according to David's reign. David's reign was far better than Saul's. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament comments on David's reign in his sermon in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. He says this, he says, that God raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. This is Jesse's son, David, the new king of Israel. God knows David. He knows his heart. He sees his heart. And he chooses for himself, David, to be the king of his people. Because he sees the heart. David was by no means perfect. He didn't claim to have a scandal-free reign. But when David was confronted with his sin, he doesn't try to cover it up. He doesn't say, well, what have I done? I have obeyed the Lord like the previous king. Rather, he owns up to it, and he's brought it before the Lord in confession and was forgiven. We confessed the very words of David from Psalm 32 in our liturgy this morning. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my heart. The words of David, this is the king that the Lord provided for his people. The Lord has provided a king for his people. He had not rejected them. And looking deeper into the context, we see that the Lord is doing something else, too. 
Not only is he providing a God-fearing king for his people, but as we, page, as we telescope back and we look at this passage, we see what God is doing in the grand scheme of history. The Lord is being faithful to his word of providing a Messiah. And the Lord is providing a Savior for us here. Fast forward through history and you find someone who is described as the son of David in the Gospels. And this same man is described as the root of David in Revelation, the king of Israel, the true king. And that's Jesus Christ. In those genealogies that are so often skipped over, looking back through the genealogy of Christ, we find David's name raked amongst a whole bunch of other people. David's royal bloodline reaches the Savior. And as Christ is born a son of David, he is born the king of Israel, the promised Messiah. And this coming king wasn't just a king of Israel, but the true king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Savior of the world. And this king, unlike all previous kings before him, would not let his people down. Saul rejected the word of the Lord, and so he was rejected from being king. His choices led throughout his reign led to the death of many of, many of his people. King David, though described as a man after God's own heart, had also failed his people. And he made choices that led to the specific death of his people, an unnecessary death. But the king that would come from David's line wouldn't let his people down. He wouldn't give in to sin, but he would instead obey the Lord, obey his father. And his actions wouldn't lead to the death of his people, but rather his actions would lead to eternal life. The king would take on himself the sin of the world and satisfy the wrath of God through his death and resurrection. And in exchange, freely give his righteousness to all who believe. He is a risen Savior and today is ruling and reigning for all eternity. Not in an earthly kingdom, but instead in a spiritual kingdom. And what is this kingdom? We looked at it this morning in Sunday school and Luther explains it this way. That God sent his son, Christ our Lord, into this world to redeem and deliver us from the power of the devil. To bring us to himself and to rule us as a king of righteousness, life and salvation against sin and death and an evil conscience. To this end, he also gave us his Holy Spirit to deliver, the, to deliver this to us through his holy word and to enlighten and strengthen us in faith by his power. Entrance, entrance to this kingdom isn't a border crossing or a citizenship examination. It's not by your actions at all. It's not by how much you know or how well you do or how often you've come to church. But it comes to us by faith. And it comes to us by faith in Christ, who has come to redeem us. We often focus on externals. We're no different than Samuel, are we? As we see majestic people or some really good people, and we say to ourselves, surely they must be saved. Look at all the good things they're doing. Or if not, surely they must be saved. We say, that person is a good person. Look at all the good they're doing. Look at all the time they're donating, the money they're donating. But instead, we're not called to focus on externals. We often focus on what we are called to do, on how well we obey or how well we follow God. We look to our own actions to see how our relationship with God is doing or how we're doing in God's sight. But what is it that the Lord tells Samuel here in this passage? 
In verse 7, what does the Lord tell Samuel that he looks at? It says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but rather the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Assurance of salvation isn't found in appearances. Entrance into the kingdom of God isn't found in appearances. It's found in the heart. And as God looks at your heart, what does he see? He doesn't see your deeds. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see the wretched, rotten sinner that refuses to die. But if you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, and if you are believing in Christ, then the Lord sees not you at all, but instead he sees Christ in his perfection. He sees a new creation, a soul that's been justified freely for Christ's sake. He sees someone acceptable to God, and not only acceptable to God, but someone who is pleasing in his sight. And this is what it means to have peace with God. Not that you and God have worked it out together where if you sin just this much, then he'll still be okay with you. You haven't struck some peace treaty together. You haven't come to some agreement with one another. You haven't come to a mutual understanding, but instead, the Savior who took on himself your sin has given to you a new heart, and he has credited to your account his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness. And when God looks at your heart, this is what he sees, because he sees not as man sees, but he sees a heart purified and sustained by Christ, perfect in righteousness. This is the heart that the Lord saw as he looked at David, as he was picking out the next king of Israel. This is what the Lord sees as he looks at you again as you have been baptized and believe in Christ. So take heart, O sinner, for God sees not as man sees, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord has provided a temporary king for his people in David. He's also provided an eternal king for his people in Jesus. And through Christ, he has provided a pure and holy heart that is available to all who believe in him. And we have a God who has provided abundantly, more than we could ask or think. Praise be to God. We have a God who sees not as man sees, but who sees, but who looks at the heart. And who not only looks at the heart, but provides a new heart, the heart of Christ, a heart forgiven, sustained, and created by faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, for what you have done for us, for how you have provided for us, that you are a God who has provided. You have provided for us your word in which we learn about you and who you are and what you have done for us. You have provided for us a Savior who has come to redeem us, not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of your Son, our Lord, who has forgiven us of all of our sins and who has clothed us with Christ and his righteousness. So, Father, as you look at us, you no longer see us in our sin. You don't see us as we see ourselves, but instead you see us righteous, pure, and holy because of what Christ has done. Help us, Lord, to trust in this finished work of Christ. And, Lord, help us to live holy lives pleasing to you based on this faith that you have given us, based on this new heart that you have given us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.